I invite you to take a Bible and turn uh, almost to the end of the New Testament to the short little letter of 1 Timothy. Last week, uh, I began bringing a series of sermons that will probably last the next uh, couple of months from the letter of 1 Timothy. A letter written by the Apostle Paul to this uh, pastor, young pastor, about 35 years old, named Timothy in the ancient but critical and important city of Ephesus. I'd like to begin reading in verse 1 of chapter 1 through verse 11. Hear God's word. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope, to Timothy, my true son in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. As I urged you when I went into Macedonia, stay there in Ephesus so that you may command certain men not to teach false doctrines any longer, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. These promote controversies rather than God's work, which is by faith. The goal of this command is love, which comes from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Some have wandered away from these and turned to meaningless talk. They want to be teachers of the law, but they do not know what they are talking about or what they so confidently affirm. We know that the law is good if one uses it properly. We also know that law is made not for the righteous, but for lawbreakers and rebels, the ungodly and sinful, the unholy and irreligious, for those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers, for adulterers and perverts, and for slave traders and liars and perjurers, and for whatever else is contrary to the sound doctrine that conforms to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which he entrusted to me. Let's pray together. Our Father, we come with hungry souls. You say that we do not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from your mouth. So we ask now that your Holy Spirit might come in power, that you might use this now to feed us, to open our eyes to our condition before you, to uh, make clear the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen. Last week we uh, were introduced to this man named Timothy. Uh, we saw how he had been raised in a family that was bicultural. His dad was Greek. His mother and his grandmother were Jewish. And when the Apostle Paul, as a missionary, had gone to their city, a small town of Lystra, they had come to faith in Christ, the mother and the grandmother, and apparently had taught Timothy and seen him come to believe in Jesus Christ also as his Savior. Paul hears about Timothy, and many of the believers say, you need to take this guy with you. For one reason, and we saw many reasons why Paul would have wanted to do so, he not only was firmly committed to Christ, but because of his cultural background. He could move in Jewish circles, he could move in Greek circles, and as they went doing mission work, that cultural background was very, very helpful. He also was courageous we saw that he had been imprisoned uh, for his commitment to Christ. Uh, he cared for people. We don't have anything in the Bible that, that Timothy wrote. There, there are no letters here like we have from the Apostle Paul. Uh, but he was genuinely concerned, and often Paul would send him to one of the churches they had started because he cared so much for the people, and he would go to encourage them. Now he's been sent by the Apostle Paul to the church at Ephesus. Now let me remind you about that church because of all the cities that in the New Testament era that were reached with the gospel, 
Paul spent more time in Ephesus than any other. And when you go to uh, the middle chapters of Acts, around chapter 15 and 16, and you read about the ministry, it was a ministry there that had supernatural things happen all around it. Uh, In Ephesus, though it was a large, large cosmopolitan city, a lot of that was due to a tourist attraction, which was a temple. It was the temple dedicated to the goddess Diana, also called Artemis, A-R-T-E-M-I-S. And there was this, uh, one of the wonders of the ancient world of architecture was the temple to Diana. And surrounding that temple was a trade that people could make money, and that was making small idols to sell. And so the silversmiths had a very lucrative business there, making and selling idols, replicas of this Diana, which is a very grotesque image. If you look in a dictionary, put in Artemis or Diana, and you'll see what I mean. But they, they made these and they sold them. Well, the Apostle Paul came and people began turning from their idol worship. And it began to affect them in their billfold. And so they incited a riot. And you can read the details about that. It's, just, it's an amazing scene that went on for hours of these people shouting, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And, and the Roman guards trying to protect Paul from literally being torn to pieces with this mob. Anyway... In Acts chapter 20, we have the departure from Paul from the church leaders at Ephesus. And it's one of the most emotional passages in my mind in the whole Bible. Paul has been, he's traveling, he's passing through Ephesus, and he calls together the elders of the church, and they accompany him down to the ship he will be getting on. And there's a scene where they kneel and they all pray with him on the beach before he leaves, because the Holy Spirit has revealed to Paul he will never see these people again. So here's what it says in Acts chapter 20. As Paul spoke to them, he said, Now I know that none of you among whom I have gone about preaching the kingdom will ever see me again. Therefore I declare to you today that I am innocent of the blood of any of you. For I have not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God. And then he says, Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. I know that after I leave, listen to this, I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So be on your guard. Remember that for three years, I never stopped warning each of you night and day with tears. Okay, those were his last words to the elders, the leaders in the church at Ephesus. Now it's five years later. Five years have passed since then. And what Paul said would happen has happened. False teachers have arisen in that church. He has sent Timothy, his key right-hand man, to try to straighten things out, to set the church right, and especially to deal with these false teachers. And so here we see some specific directions on how he's to do this. First, there's a warning He does not mention the false teachers by name. He just says, stay there, see in verse 3, so that you may command certain men not to teach false doctrines any longer. I think he doesn't name the men because everybody knew who they were. I Also, my opinion is he doesn't name them because once those people were gone, there would just be more that would come later. So they knew who they were, and he's saying, Timothy, you instruct 
You command them not to teach certain things any longer. Any longer. That means it had been happening. It was going on. This wasn't something that might happen. It had happened. And their particular emphasis, it says, is that they devoted themselves to myths and endless genealogies, legends, fables, as an alternative to clearly revealed truth. Now, you can turn in the Old Testament several places, especially in Genesis, and you will find long genealogies. So-and-so begat so-and-so who begat so-and-so who begat so-and-so. And not that that is an inspired scripture, but these people were taking and reading into this all sorts of things that really weren't there. Then there were extra-biblical books, like the Book of Jubilees. In the Book of Jubilees, it tried to name all of the children of Adam and Eve. It tried to name all of the 70 who came down into Egypt. It tried to name all of the descendants of Noah after the flood. Just speculation and getting off on other things that weren't that important. And he says all the result of that is they were trafficking in speculation and conjecture and it was producing nothing but controversy and arguments. But God, God has a different goal for his church. Rather than controversies and arguments, his goal is given in verse 5. The goal of this command, that is the command by faith, is love. God's goal is love, that love will be the defining mark of his followers, of his church. Jesus said in John 13, A new command I give to you, that you love one another. Even I has loved you, that you also love one another. So it's love for God. It's also love for, for others. What is the greatest commandment? To love God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is to love our neighbor as ourselves. So God's goal of instruction is not confusion, not speculation, not ongoing arguments about the law, but real teaching will produce this. Love, what type of love? First, it flows from a pure heart. A pure heart. The heart in the Bible is not speaking of the organ that pumps blood through your veins. It's talking about the core of your being. The seat of who you are. It's the center of your being. And we're told in Proverbs to guard that. Proverbs 4 says, above all else, guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of your life. What you give your heart to, what you give your affections to, begins to control your whole life. Yesterday, uh, one of our daughters and a bunch of other students were to go to Itchituckney Springs. Now, most of the people, well, some of the people at the first service knew what I mean. How many of y'all know what the Itchituckney River is? Okay, good, good, all right. More on this side. It, it, shame on you, all right. This is one of the greatest things in North America. The Itchituckney River that starts at the Itchituckney State Park is right outside of Gainesville, Florida. And a river flows out that's clear as it can be, and people go and they tube this river. It's not white water or anything like that, but it's clear cold water. And they come from all over the country and sometimes all over the world to go down the Itchituckney River and to see this. Barbara and I stopped there years ago when we lived in South Florida, and it was too late to tube the river. It was late in the day, but we went to the, to the wellspring there in the state park. There was this, at that time, this, this wooden deck going all around, and it gave, the sign told how many million gallons of water per minute or second or water coming up from the spring. Well, what Proverbs is saying would guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life. If we wanted to contaminate the river, all we would have to do is come up with some strong concentrated poison or a contaminant and pour it in the wellspring because whatever affects that is going to affect the entire river. That's what Proverbs mean. And so what God's goal is, is that from your heart there would be love that flows from a pure heart. 
Secondly, it comes from a good conscience. That means a clear conscience, a forgiven conscience. That recognizes that we all sin, but that God can forgive sin through Christ. And so we're reminded in 1 John, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so we need consciences that also are good and they are led by God's word. They are shaped by the scriptures. Psalm 119 says, How can a young man keep his way pure? By keeping it according to thy word. With all my heart I have sought thee. So the road to a clear conscience is forgiveness. Some people try to have a clear conscience by minimizing or ignoring or just denying that they have any sin. I didn't do anything wrong. I've never broken that law. I've not done that. My conscience is clear. Or the other problem we have is we ignore it. Well, yeah, I sinned, but it wasn't in the scope of things relative to the rest of the human race through all of history. It just wasn't that big of a deal. Listen to this letter that Martin Luther wrote to a young man named George Spalatin. And this was written on August 21st, 1544. Luther and uh, others knew George well, and apparently he had a very sensitive conscience. And he lived with an enormous amount of guilt and could not come to grips with forgiveness and that God's grace was sufficient to cover his sin. So Luther writes him this letter that's somewhat tongue-in-cheek, but it makes the point. He says, My faithful request and admonition to you, George, is that you join our company and associate with us because we are real, great, hard-boiled sinners. You must by no means make Christ to seem small and trifling to us as though he could be our helper only when we would want to get rid of imaginary and minimal and childish sins. No, that would be no good for us. Jesus must rather be a Savior and a Redeemer from real, great, grievous, damnable transgressions and iniquities. Yea, from the very greatest and most shocking sins, to be brief from all sins added together in a grand total. He says, George, you will have to get used to the belief that Christ is a real Savior and you are a real sinner. For God is neither jesting, nor dealing in imaginary affairs, but he is greatly and most assuredly in earnest when he sent his own son into the world and sacrificed him for our sakes. What was Luther saying? God sent Jesus here to save sinners, not just for jaywalking. Sinners who, who went five miles over the speed limit, but big sinners, murderers, adulterers, idolaters, thieves, Everything that the Ten Commandments says. Because our problem is Satan tempts us who believe in the gospel that either our sin is too great to be forgiven or God's grace is not sufficient to cover it. And yet it is sufficient. And no, our sin is not too great for him to forgive. The third aspect of this love, it not only comes from a pure heart and a good conscience, but also a sincere faith. We live in a day of... uh, religious posturing uh, of when people use religion as some kind of uh, in a general way to posture themselves or um, in a way that just lacks sincerity often. And one of the warnings that Paul wrote to Timothy in 2 Timothy about the last days, he said people would have a form of godliness but they would deny its power. So even in rebellion to God we can see religion expand. 
and grow. And the main opponents, and I always tend to think about this, and it kind of scares me since I serve on a church staff and spend my life as a pastor, the main opponents of Jesus were religious people. It wasn't the non-religious. It was the religious leaders, the people who publicly would pray, and they knew more Scripture from the Old Testament than I'll ever know. And they gave publicly, and they did all these public deeds of religion, and yet they were the main enemies. They were the main enemies of Jesus. Do you have a sincere faith, a real faith, not one that you're just trying to show your parents or your friends or your, your co-workers or because you're running for public office, if anyone is, that you show up at church? It's got to be sincere. That's God's goal, that loves from a pure heart and a good flows from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Now, he goes on, and in the last paragraph, I'm just going to kind of compress it down. They not only were doing all this meaningless conjecture about genealogies and stuff, they were, they were focusing on the Old Testament law, the Ten Commandments and its implications, and they were misusing it. And so beginning in verse 7, the Apostle Paul deals with this. He says they want to be teachers of the law, but they don't know what they're talking about or what they so confidently affirm. Now remember who's writing this. The Apostle Paul, Pharisee of the Pharisees, Hebrew of Hebrews, of the tribe of Benjamin, circumcised the eighth day, schooled, zealous, would have given his life for the law. So he knows what he's talking about, and he's saying they don't. They don't know what they're trying to affirm. And then in verse 8 he says, We know that the law is good if one uses it properly. So the law itself is good. The Ten Commandments and how those are worked out in the, the Old Testament. That is good, he says, when it's used properly. You can take a good thing and use it in a wrong way. When I was in the 11th grade, I had a late birthday, and I turned 16 at the beginning of my junior year in high school. My parents gave me a very old, rusted-out 1966 Ford Mustang and a set of Craftsman tools. <laughs> and I never went, tried to go anywhere in that car without the tools in the trunk. So I had this nice craftsman box, and at that time, I guess they still do, they came with a lifetime warranty, which I would need as this story progresses. Uh, I would carry this, and it had screwdrivers and sockets, and it had a ratchet wrench. The most expensive tool in the whole thing was this ratchet wrench about that long, a half-inch, guys. Okay. So a uh, ratchet wrench has ball bearings and some degree of precision machining inside of it if it's a good one. I was always taught you use a tool for what it was made for. You don't try to screw a screw in with a hammer, as many of you have tried to do, you know. So I get married. And my wife has a different view of tools that I found out one day. I came home. We've been married for a few weeks. We're living in South Florida in this one-bedroom apartment. And I came in one day, and my wife is standing on a chair, hanging a picture, nailing in the, the hammer, Sorry, I'm just, I may need a moment. And she, she's got my ratchet wrench <laughs> using it as a hammer. I still can't believe that. Uh, she's a get it done, get it down, uh, get it done now, how whatever it takes high person. I'm like, I was, I was just stunned. You're, you, I still can't talk about it. You're hitting a nail with my ratchet wrench. Thankfully, it had a lifetime warranty on which I used shortly after that. 
Now, it's a good thing, it was a good tool, but it's made for something very different. The law is good, but it has three main purposes in the Bible. Let me tell you what they are, and they're easy to remember. First, it has a restraining purpose. You shall not murder, you shall not steal. These things. Can you imagine what life would be like? We couldn't function if there weren't laws to restrain evil. What if the laws were just wishes and we had ten suggestions that were put out? You know, we kind of suggest that you not, you not murder anybody, don't steal anything, don't lie in court, uh, don't give, you know, it's just a suggestion, but, you know, if you do, there's no consequences. Well, public life could not continue. It would be chaotic. So the law has a restraining purpose. That's the first use of the law. The second use, and these are not in order of importance, but the most the primary use is, is a, it is a condemning use. The law condemns us. We see our hearts as we really are. If we're ignorant, the old saying, ignorant is bliss, say, well, I'm okay as long as I don't look at the standard. And I may say, well, boy, I'm, I'm, living, I'm, I'm living a good life. I'm a good person relative to everyone around me. Well, then we look at God's standards, and they're a lot higher. And so the Apostle Paul did that, and he says in Romans 7, I felt fine when I did not understand what the law demanded. But when I learned the truth, I realized I had broken the law and was a sinner, doomed to die. Now, that's the second use of the law. It condemns us. It shows us our need of a Savior. So it restrains evil. It condemns us. I knew of a man who's an architect, and I heard him tell uh, years ago that he felt he was acceptable to God because he was a good person. And that he just, he had been taught that in church. He believed that. He just thought, I'm a good person. Yeah, I believe in Jesus. He was the son of God. But basically, assuming there's a heaven, I sure God would accept me. My good outweighs my bad. And he tells how he had gone in the hospital for some surgery, and not that it was life-threatening, but he had to recuperate for several days. And his pastor, or someone, he, not his real pastor, but someone who had met him, came to see him, this pastor. And he started talking to him and started talking to him about his faith and kind of had a captive audience right there. Bill, Bill couldn't leave. And the, the pastor's saying, well, how do, you, how do you think we're made right with God? And it didn't take the pastor long to pick up on the fact that Bill thought, well, I'm a good person and that'll be enough. And so the pastor said, yeah, I guess you are a good person. You look like a good person. Hey, you ever heard the Sermon on the Mount? Remember that sermon starts off with blessed are? Oh, yeah, yeah, I know that. Remember what Jesus said that, you know, you've heard you shouldn't commit murder? You've never committed murder, have you? No, I've never murdered anybody. Well, guess what he says? He says if we're angry enough with another person to call him a fool, we've committed adultery, I mean, a murder in our hearts. Oh, and he said you've heard, you know, should not commit adultery. Right, right, yeah, oh, yeah, don't commit adultery. Well, he says, you know, if we have these certain thoughts in our hearts, we've committed adultery. And Bill said the more he talked, the more I realized, ooh, I'm not so good anymore, and I just started sinking. Well, it was either a short time after that that he came to faith in Christ. But that's the condemning use of the law. That we see ourselves through a broken mirror, a real, you know, a mirror like on, in the old carnivals, they had these mirrors. You'd go in and make, make a short person look tall or a tall person look short. And so we see ourselves in a distorted way. Well, then God's law is like a, a clear, accurate mirror. And we say, oh, I didn't know it was that bad. And that's what the law does. It condemns us. So it strains, it, con it restrains evil, it condemns sin to show us we need a Savior. And last of all, it guides us. It leads us, once we come to faith in Christ, then it gives us wisdom. And we're, we're to follow it. And so we can make decisions. 
I don't have to pray about a decision that will involve a violation of God's law. Uh, should I steal this today? You know, I'm in Kroger and I'm thinking, Lord, would you have me steal this or pay for it? I remember Paul Little, the author who was killed in a car wreck years ago, but I remember a video where he's speaking to a large crowd of college students and he said this, Are you praying about marrying a non-Christian? Save your breath. I mean, if God's revealed his will, like he has in that area and many others in the word, then it guides us. So it restrains evil, it condemns us and shows us we need a savior, and it also guides us. Now, what were these people doing that was so wrong? They were using the law improperly. They were going into the group of believers, the church, and then bringing in the law saying, this is how you're right with God. This is how you get right with God. You need to do this, do this, do this, don't do that, don't do that. Now, we have to be careful how we use God's law because we can use it in an improper manner. Here are some ways we use it in an improper manner. We use the law of God improperly when we treat it as a way of being made right with God, as if by keeping it we have earned God's grace and forgiveness. As if by keeping it, we have somehow put God in our debt, and he now owes me forgiveness. When we see Christian obedience as anything other than loving, grateful, natural response of a person in whom the Spirit of God dwells, when we see it in any other way, we have misunderstood the law and that for which it was intended. That's one way we can misapply the law. Secondly, we use it improperly when we perhaps stop short of thinking that we have earned our salvation, and yet we treat godly day-to-day living as a means to be more pleasing and acceptable to God, as if God loves me more if I obey this command and he loves me less if I don't. If I have five devotionals this week, I'm more acceptable to him, but if I only have one or two, then he's angry at me. That is a misapplication of the law of God. Third, we, we use the law of God improperly when we perhaps stop short of thinking we've earned our salvation, and yet we become more concerned with debating God's law and discussing it or speculating about it than we are with actually using it as God's tool for continually bringing about a deeper and deeper repentance and therefore a deeper dependence upon the grace of God. We also, last of all, use the law of God improperly when we succumb to the pursuit of mere morality and we try to achieve the goal of Christ-likeness through self-effort, simply by trying harder rather than letting God's law and our falling short of it always lead us to Christ in a deeper understanding of the gospel. I don't know where the balance is, folks. If I'm making it sound simple, I'm not trying to because it isn't simple. But God's law is not there as a ladder for us to climb to, to, to try to achieve what we received when Jesus paid for our sins. I cannot add to that. When he on the cross said, it is finished, it wasn't 90%. Now I add the last 10 through my obedience. It was 100%. And so the law has an important place in our our life, but not to make us right with God. So that's Paul's point. These false teachers had viewed the church as their mission field. 
If you go to a church and you feel that Christians are the mission field, something's wrong. If the whole reason for the church exists to straighten out the other Christians and to teach them how they're supposed to live, then something's amiss, something's wrong, because that's what was motivating these people. And he closes in verse 11, is that he's interested, he mentions the glorious gospel of the blessed God which he entrusted to me. The purpose of the law is to direct us and people to the gospel. I see my need, the law crushes me, it beats me down, it shows me what I'm really like, and therefore rather than just being despondent, I turn and say, I need a savior, I need someone who can make me right, someone who can be my substitute, and that's Jesus Christ. He's the eternal God. God made you, he made me, he created all of us to enjoy him and to enjoy others. But we chose to do what we want to do, to go our own way. Christ chose to become a man in humble circumstances, in poverty, to identify with us. He was on a rescue mission to seek and to save that which was lost. He comes to this earth, he lives a perfect life. He allows us to murder him, to be put to death, the sinless one put to death, he dies on the cross, he takes my sin upon him, he's punished in my place, he pays the penalty, he goes to the tomb. Before he does go to the tomb, before he dies, he says, Father, forgive them for what they do. Unbelievable. Three days later, as he promised, he rises from the dead. He says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. He's the only way to have your sin forgiven. He's the only way to see eternal life. He's the only way to know God is through him. That's it. That's sound doctrine. That is sound doctrine. Jesus Christ loves you. And you respond by trusting him, by loving him. That is sound doctrine. You say, well, what's all this stuff in the Bible? All this stuff I'm supposed to do. Well, it is, but it's a result of knowing Christ. See, our problem, your problem, my problem is not lying because if you love Jesus, you will stop lying. The problem is not stealing. If you love Jesus, that will motivate you not to steal. The problem is not adultery and all sorts of sexual immorality. It's the question of whether you love Jesus. Do you know Christ? Here's the difference between a true teacher and a false teacher. A false teacher will stand up and open the scriptures and say, do this, do this, do this, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, do this, don't do this, do this, do this, do this, do this, do this. And I think a true teacher, a real teacher of God's word says, well, you need Jesus. You need Jesus. You need to love him. The Bible's filled with wonderful things to do, but you can't do them without Jesus. You need Jesus. False teachers care about what you do and what you don't do. Real teachers care about who you love. Dave Nicholas was here a couple of years ago, and he died last January. But I heard him say, and I wrote it down, and I've repeated it in several sermons, but it's been a while. He said this, God wants you to know him. As you get to know him, you will learn to love him. As you love him, you will learn to trust him. And as you trust him, you will learn to obey him. If you don't obey him... It's really because you don't trust him. And if you don't trust him, it's because you don't love him. And if you don't love him, it's because you don't know him. God wants you to know him. Let's pray together. Our Father and our God, thank you for the work of Christ. 
There's something within all of us just thinks that the harder we work for something, the more we expect to get, even with you. And we thank you for your law, not because it's a ladder we can climb to be made acceptable with you, but because it does restrain evil in our world. Uh, It restrains evil in our own lives at times. And it also shows us our need of you, our need for a Savior, our need for someone to replace our if with his A. May our trust be in Jesus and him only, and we pray in Christ's name. Amen.